2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to your repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it is not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. Thank you, Graham. Wasn't it great to... We've been really encouraged, haven't we, so far in our service? Your um, Bible's open there, and there will be uh, some slides uh, with some of the passages that we'll be focusing on. But we heard earlier about a big concert event, uh, Paul McCartney. There's another uh, great big concert uh, performer, Elton John, who has a uh, pretty infamous song that has these words. It seems always to me that sorrow seems to be the hardest word. Anyone familiar with that song? When you reflect upon that, that's a, a common thought, right? That the word sorry is really hard to say. And genuine sorrow, apologising to someone for something that's been done wrong, is a very difficult thing to do. And it's a very humbling thing to do when it's done with authenticity and with integrity. But it seems today, I wonder, if sorry is actually such a hard word to say after all. It seems to be said a lot, doesn't it? 
we throw it around often. I know I do, and it's usually associated with very trivial and small things. Uh, for example, you might bump into someone and you say, oh, sorry. Or um, you, you suddenly become self-aware and realise you're standing in the way of someone and say, oh, I'm sorry, and you, you sort of, you sort of apologise for everything. In fact, amongst, uh, I won't name them, but particular, a particular generation of, of, of a younger age, they seem to say sorry for, for lots of things. You hear people sorry, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, oh, sorry. Uh, as a parent, you'll know what that, what that sounds like. But when it comes to serious matters, when it comes to, um, to, to, to relationships and major wrongs that we do against one another, saying sorry actually requires a lot more than just saying sorry. And there's another word, and particularly for those of us as Christian people in Christian community, there's another word that is actually a whole lot harder to say than sorry, and it's much harder to do, and that is to repent. You see, when we've wronged someone or we've become aware of something serious, a mistake that we might have made or uh, that's negatively affected someone else, affected others, then sorry is really only the beginning, right? What's really required to put things right is to look at what it is that we've said or what it is that we've done and to change that behaviour, to change that behaviour. And that's what repentance means. It, it literally means to identify the mistake or, or wrong that's been done uh, and to take responsibility for it in so much as it depends on you and, and to commit to not doing that or saying that again, to, to make amends if we have to uh, and, and to reconcile with the person that we might have wronged or have wronged. Repentance really is quite unique uh, to uh, the Christian community. It's, it's at the heart of Christian discipleship as those who follow Jesus. It's what um, Jesus calls us to as his followers uh, when we wrong others. Um, he says that's what brings about peace uh, between us and the New Testament writers testify to this as well. Um, and it's, what we, it's how we come to faith in the first place, right? Uh, we don't just run around saying sorry to God and do bad stuff and sorry to God and then ignore him and oh sorry God and, and, and sort of that's our relationship with him that's not actually a relationship with him that's quite trite we actually need to come to a point of repentance where we acknowledge we have wronged God and we're by our own trajectories against him all the time we like to go things our own way and so we, we, we practice repentance, we need to repent and that's what leads us to faith, that's what leads us to the cross, that's what brings us to our knees in gratitude as we receive his unconditional, complete and utter grace and forgiveness and love towards us. But saying sorry and repenting requires a level of confrontation and it's that confrontation that is often the sticking point. It's what's really, really difficult, it can be the biggest hurdle to saying sorry, but, and, and particularly even to repenting. None of us like or enjoy confrontation. Now, I say that because that's normal, right? No one likes confrontation uh, uh, or, 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 um, or doing that. Now, some people do, and, and we call them sociopaths, right? Those that actually enjoy confrontation, those that live for it, and we may know, uh, or we've seen it certainly in entertainment and in comedies often, when you see someone who seems to love that kind of thing, but there are some people who will be better at confrontation than others of us. And by that I mean uh, they've learnt to, uh, to, to see the positive in it and they do it well. Um, they don't enjoy it necessarily. Um, well, I hope they don't enjoy it. Uh, but they, they seem to not be as terrified or it's not a greater hurdle for them as it is for most of us. But for the most part, confrontation is not something we run to. 
How many of you can think of a time uh, when you knew you needed to acknowledge a wrong? Where, where you, you, needed, you knew you needed to apologise for that wrong and you, and you needed to put things right uh, with a person that was affected by that wrong. Now think about the next step. How much harder it was to take the initiative to make that happen, to have that conversation. You see, the challenge for many of us is how to confront in a healthy way that resolves the issue and brings about healing and reconciliation. And this is important for us as individuals, personally, and it's really important if we're going to be a healthy church, a healthy church community, a gospel-centred community. We need to know um, how healthy confrontation or godly confrontation works, no matter if we're good at confronting or if we're terrified by it. And so today, that's what we're going to be looking at in this passage in chapter 7. We'll have a look broadly at the context because it helps us understand what's going here and recap. We've been going through 2 Corinthians together. Uh, Paul has been uh, looking uh, at Corinthians and there uh, was clearly a significant confrontation that had happened at some point between this church and himself as their founding apostle. Okay, and he's not with them at the time, he's in Ephesus, and he's writing these letters to them. We've got two of the letters, uh, there are definitely three and possibly four, it doesn't really matter, we have two, and uh, both of these letters refer to this third letter at least, that was quite a harsh letter, as Paul describes it, a harsh letter that he had written to this church uh, to address a serious error in their behaviour, uh, a serious um, waywardness in their attitudes towards him as their apostle and towards the other apostles. And, and you may remember some of the specific charges, as we've looked at in previous weeks, that this church had levelled against Paul, um, who had wronged him. Uh, just to recap, chapter 1, verse 13, they said that Paul uh, was ambiguous. Um, you're difficult, Paul. You're difficult to understand. Uh, and, and they would, of course, twist his words, and, and they would misrepresent his teachings. Uh, they said that he was fickle, verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1. You know, they'd say, you can't be dependent on Paul. You, you change your mind. Remember, he had travel plans to come and see them. And then he said, oh, you know, I wish I could come and see you, but the Spirit prevented me and I didn't. And, I've changed. and uh, he's, they say that he backs out of commitments. They say he's unreliable. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. They say that he brags about himself. They say, Paul, you're always commending yourself. You're always putting yourself on a pedestal. You exalt yourself. You boast in your accomplishments. Uh, in, in chapter 6, verse 8, they, they called him an imposter. They sort of questioned his apostolic calling. Christ doesn't really speak through you, is what they're saying of Paul. Then they would go on chapter 10, verses 1 to 2. They say, Paul, you've got no real authority. In fact, you're a timid person. We hardly know you're here when you turn up, if you do turn up. Uh, but you are pretty bold only when you write letters from a long way away. That was the reputation Paul had. Timid in person but bold only by the pen. They accused him of being crafty and deceitful in chapter 12. You always take advantage of others, they would say. These are pretty serious charges, aren't they? Terrible accusations, really, to bring against someone, someone like Paul, in the way that he had poured his life into this church, the way that he had founded them, pulled them together, helped them work through the many challenges of, of, um, of, of Jews coming to faith in Jesus and, and then having to extend that same salvation to Gentiles, pagans, outside of the Jewish tradition um, and, and bringing those walls of hostility down and encouraging them uh, to be united in Christ. These are pretty serious charges. I wonder how you'd think he would naturally respond. How would you naturally respond? 
I know how I'd be tempted to actually respond. You'd want to jump in there and defend yourself, right? You'd want to take that on. You'd want to, you'd want to fire back and say, well, if you think that's what I am, let me tell you what I think you are. You know, that would sort of be a, a natural human response. But he doesn't do that. Paul is a man who knew and experienced God's grace towards him in miraculous ways. And so he responds in kind. He responds differently to that human way. He, 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 chose, he chose to respond in loving communication with a goal in mind and a desire to bring restoration. And he took the initiative by writing this severe letter. By confronting them, he stepped in to confrontation. I want us to keep that in mind as we just look at two points this morning from the passage. The first one is this. Godly confrontation is necessary for a healthy church. Godly confrontation is necessary for a healthy church. You know, so often we, 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 we don't run into confrontation, do we? We avoid it. We avoid it. And we think that that's health. We think that unity and peace is when you don't confront. Uh, and uh, and that's, that's actually unhealthy. We need to, to understand and get to know that there is a confrontation that can be godly and it's even necessary um, as God's people. You know, there's a truth about us that um, we can't ignore and I want you to think about your cars for a moment. You know, our cars always need realignment. Uh, if your car hasn't had realignment for a while, you better get onto it um, and you're probably driving funny. But um, cars get out of alignment, don't they? And uh, you and I are the same. We often get out of alignment in our, in our relationship with God and with each other. I know I do think about it. I, I can go through a day, you may be able to identify with this, where I'm praising God, I'm having a great time with God. I'm, I'm praying, I'm bringing to mind, he's laying things on my mind and heart, and rather than stewing over them or try to work them out myself, I'm just handing them over to him and I'm praying through them and praying for people and listening to some great songs. And then you can get home, get out of the car... And it's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that's what um, Melissa calls it anyway. Uh, you know, suddenly there's this, there's this whole other person. We, we, can, we, can just be, we can just be completely out of alignment to, to, to who we know we can be and should be and could be. Um, or overnight, perhaps, we go to sleep, wake up in the morning and that wonderful day you had yesterday with God or with these people or with someone, uh, you've got this, this kind of apathy sets in. And it's, it's not the same. That connection you felt with God isn't there. Well, we need alignment. And just like, just like our cars, we're driving on um, potted roads and, you know, there's lots of potholes and things and bumps, particularly if you live in uh, the Manning Valley. Uh, we all know it all too well. Um, our cars get whacked out of alignment. The more potholes you hit, the quicker your car will be out of alignment. But here's a greater reality. For you and I who are following Jesus, for you and I who are Christian people, Right? Our, our, our lives as Christian people living in this world is always going to be one bumpy road. It really is a bumpy journey. It's difficult in our part of the world. It's difficult in our society. Uh, it's not easy. If you've signed up, if you've come to faith and you're, you've given your allegiance to Jesus and you recognise him as your Lord and Saviour, it's going to be a hard life. It's not going to be smooth sailing. We live in a very challenging society and it's more than a bumpy road for those who choose to love God and love others. Well, all you have to do to be drawn away uh, from your commitment to Jesus is nothing, right? This is the, the culture we live in. It's actually, uh, it's actually easy to, to fall away from following Jesus. We're like in a, in, a, in a cultural tide or a tide in a cultural ocean, just sort of being ripped out to sea. 
and we all get off course from time to time. I tell you that this morning because it's actually godly confrontation that is God's way of bringing us back into alignment. And I hope you can see it like that. I hope we can change the way we see confrontation because it's how God brings us back into alignment. We've got to understand it and we've got to accept it. Back at the start of, of this letter in chapter uh, 2, verse 4, uh, Paul reminds the Corinthians this. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Why did I do that? Well, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying this letter that was harsh that I wrote to you wasn't, wasn't, um, I'm not a sociopath. He's not, he's not doing it because he loves confrontation. And he didn't do it because he wanted to hurt them. He did it actually because he loves them. He loves them. And, and this abundant love that he has for them. And, and in our reading this morning in chapter 7, Paul says that he's glad that he's actually written this harsh letter. Did you pick it up there in verses 8 to 9? For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Although I did regret that that letter grieved you though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. You were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Here's what we need to see this morning. Paul has sorrow, but no regret for that confrontation. He has deep sorrow, but absolutely no regret. Confrontation done in a godly way will always be equally difficult for both the person doing the confrontation, the confronter, and for the person who's confronted, in this case, the church. And yet it was absolutely necessary. You know, if that confrontation had never happened, the church would have become sick. It would have continued along in ignorance. It would have believed these false accusations made against Paul. They would have become doctrine. They would have, uh, they would have been led astray. They were already being led astray by other uh, super apostles, uh, as we'll read about in chapters to come. The right kind of godly confrontation was hard, but it brought healing and health to the church. I read during the week of uh, one church leader who talks about this as something that we actually need to learn to embrace as Christian people in Christian community. It's something we need to run towards uh, as Christians. He says, uh, when conflict, tension and difficulty shows up, run to it, face it, deal with it, lead through it, now, right when it's happening, don't put it off any later. Our instinct is to ignore tension and conflict, but ignoring conflict now will only make for a bigger and messier conflict three months from now, or longer. We're used to running away from tension because we think the first signs of conflict mean the beginning of the end of a relationship. That's not true. Conflict is normal and ought to be seen like that in every healthy relationship. In navigating conflict with humility and direct communication, we make relationships stronger and healthier. That's the first point of a message for those of us who know we need to do this. But let me just say, in case you're hearing me say, righto, church, we need, now need to start confronting. And, and, and maybe there's a stack of things, a number of you are thinking, well, I've got a whole list now. If I've got to do this, where do I start? What I'm not saying is we need to go and seek out confrontation. That's not what we're saying at all. This is, that's a warning against those that enjoy it or think they're good at it. Um, uh, in fact, you're probably not the best person to be doing the confrontation. And I want to encourage you as a church, 
Uh, this is really important that our goal in the way we relate to each other isn't just to, to clear the air and air our grievances, okay, I'm sort of counteracting what we're saying here. Our goal is to love one another and to encourage one another and build each other up. And that is my heart's desire for you as a church. And I want to say to you, it's particularly important, ever more so important, in the coming weeks, months, however it is, however long it is that God uh, has us as a church or you as a church um, in that space looking uh, for new pastoral leadership. It's vital that we make our goal, that you make your goal, uh, expressing love and, and honour towards one another and respecting each other and thinking the best of each other, building one another up. Let me encourage you with that. Of course it's true, we need to love each other enough to not just do the encouraging but also to confront when necessary. But in Paul's case, it's when things are really serious. It, it, it's confrontation that we, where we see someone who's, who's at risk of, of spiritual danger you know, a, a person or a situation where, where, where we can say to someone, hey, I'm really concerned for you. Can, can, I, can I share with you a concern I have? Um, you know, there's, this, there's this real issue and I, and I, and I want to come alongside you and, and, and you know, help me out. Uh, help me understand. This is how I see something that's happened or this is how I perceive it. Um, have I got that right? Am I wrong? Can you, can you help me with that? And so we need to have soft and open hearts, don't we? That's how we do it. We need to have soft and open hearts. And it's also something that takes significant skill. So I want to encourage your church to pray for a heart of both toughness and tenderness when it comes to relating to one another, learning the skills of healthy, healthy confrontation. I had a pastor that I used to work with. He was a, a, a retired pastor, uh, Mike Dennis. Um, uh, one of the, one, from, the, from the era of, um, you know, he was the, the epitome of stoicism. He was Scottish-Australian, uh, but uh, a very stoic man, a, a very capable leader, a very godly man, and, and one who loved, loved the church, loved people. And uh, he had this amazing capacity to come into our office. Uh, I was the associate pastor and my um, a senior pastor that we worked with. He'd come into our office and he'd say a few things, be pretty quick, and he, he'd, uh, he wasn't into digital stuff, so he had files and files of, um, of printed out articles, you know, and he'd say, hey, have you guys read this? And go, yeah, we read it three weeks ago online, but thank you, you know. Uh, but that's how he'd walk around and he would, he would always encourage, but he would leave and more often than not, you'd sit there in the next kind of 30 minutes after he's left the office and you go, hang on a minute. I think he just had a go at me. He did. He did. He just, oh, oh, oh. That, that's how you know that there's a man that models um, intentional, godly confrontation. We didn't even know we were being confronted, right? But, but we were left with enough to think about uh, something that he was encouraging us with or challenging us on in a way that we felt affirmed and we, we, we loved him dearly. He's, he's with the Lord now, but we loved him dearly when we look back uh, upon that. That's just one example of what godly confrontation can look like. The second thing, uh, as we wrap things up here, godly confrontation leads to comfort and joy. Did you notice the result of Paul's confrontation in verse 9? He says, you were grieved into repenting. This is a good thing, right? Um, and, and the Corinthians, their relationship with Paul, uh, which had been a troubled one, had begun to heal. And you can see the joy in his heart as he continues in verses 6 to 7. It's up there uh, on the slide. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, what's happening here? Well, Titus um, was we're working with Paul, and Paul couldn't get to Corinth, remember? So he sent Titus to Corinth to report back and, and, and to see how they'd received the letter, how they'd responded to the letter. And um, it says, and not only will we be comforted by the coming of Titus, 
um, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. Paul, Paul gets this report back and Titus says, the church, church were doing great. They, they, they seem to really respond well to your letter. They welcomed me with open arms. And that's been a source of comfort to Paul. As Paul continues, he says, Titus told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. You know, if you read this whole passage, you, you saw it as we heard it earlier. There's lots of words, aren't there, like comforted, rejoiced, being refreshed, because the confrontation was a healthy one, a godly one, and because the Corinthians had responded to it in humility and in a godly way, and they'd accepted it. But what did it take? Well, it took someone who was willing to do the hard work. Have a listen again to verses 10 and 11. For godly sorrow, or godly grief, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, well, it produces death. For see what earnestness this godly sorrow has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. See, their response, their acceptance of it, their godly response to this godly confrontation has brought great joy, great healing and great comfort, and not only to Paul, but to the church and also to Titus. Well, what's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow or grief? You know, the flippant kind of sorrow versus godly sorrow. Well, there is a, a, a kind of grief that is self-centred. And it's a sorrow that comes over us because we actually got caught out. All right? It's, it's the grief for the consequences we now have to face. And, and that brings with it a sense of deep regret, doesn't it? And, and worldly sorrow is basically about us. It's about how we feel. You know, when, when we, something's pointed out to us, and, and we can very easily turn it into victimhood. You know, when someone confronts us, we go, oh, oh I can't believe I had that effect on someone, or, oh, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm so grieved. There's a fine line. There's a fine line where worldly sorrow is about how we feel, and it doesn't really lead to change. Somehow being confronted of the truth of what we've done upsets us, because it's been made known and it's come to, come, come, come to others' attention. But their godly sorrow is one that we, um, that we uh, bring within ourselves. There's godly sorrow is one that, that draws us sorry, outside of ourselves and it helps us see who we've really uh, grieved. And that's this other kind of sorrow, and that is the grief that comes from knowing that we've offended a good and holy God. You know, each time we do something wrong against a neighbour... It's actually God who's grieved. It's God who's grieved. God loves unity. He, he wants us to be together. He wants us unified. He wants relationship. He created us for it. And so when he sees us now in relationship with him through Christ, grieve one another. It grieves him. It grieves him. And this grief realises that when we do that, we're, we're, kind of, we're putting aside his lordship. And we're jumping back on that throne again. We're kind of putting ourselves back in charge of our own lives and we're stepping into his rightful place. Whereas godly grief recognises that utter sinfulness of sin and hates it more and more. Doesn't feel self-pity about it, but actually hates it and goes back to the cross and asks God for his forgiveness. Help me, God. Forgive me again. Thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. I'm now free to go and forgive others as well. 
You know how the church has handled this in the past in, in many different ways? Uh, not our tradition, typically, as, as Baptist believers, but uh, many other traditions, uh, they have, and you may be familiar with these, maybe you grew up with some, not everyone here is from the Baptist tradition in all their lives, um, but catechisms, and, and catechism is this great sort of teaching method of asking a question and then learning an answer to that question. It's done usually when you're young, it's also done for adults as well. And there's this centuries-old catechism. And this answer, uh, answer number 99, gives a really good definition of what godly sorrow looks like. And it's this. Godly grief is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. That's simple. Godly grief is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. That's why it's important as part of our worship to practice that. You know, often in our prayers, as we, we're, we're led in prayer, we'll have opportunity to confess our sins or to, to sit and reflect upon something we may need to bring and ask uh, before, uh, bring before God and ask Him for forgiveness for. And, and what that does is that immediately returns our attention back to the cross, back to the very place Jesus calls all of us in the first place, where, where, where God's forgiveness and His restorative love freely and unconditionally flows. Let me just wrap up a couple more uh, as we close and just think about these. I'll ask the question and then I'll read out the answer. Think about some of these, these statements. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no mere human has ever been able to keep the law of God. Certainly not perfectly. But consistently, we break it in thought, word and deed. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favour? Yes. To satisfy His justice, God Himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to Himself. And He delivers us from sin, from the punishment for it, by a Redeemer, His Son, Jesus Christ. Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? Yes. Because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sins. God graciously imputes, that is, puts into us Christ's righteousness as if it were our own and he will remember our sins no more. I trust they are great statements for you. Because of these truths, because of these statements, we can confess our sins with joy. We can accept loving confrontational rebuke from a brother or sister in Christ when it's done in a godly way. Because we have a saviour that we both are in need of forgiveness for and who cleanses us. And so we can repent, we can turn back to God and we can put right the wrongs that may have been pointed out to us that we've been involved in. And we can do so with joy and experience God's comfort. We get then to have sorrow without regret and with salvation that brings life and life to the full. I'm going to pray in a moment, but let me ask you as we, we come to prayer, are you willing to love others enough to confront when it's needed? And of course, you've got to have a relationship there. No one has the gift of confrontation. It's not a gift. It's not a thing. Okay? It's, it's in the context of a relationship. Um, God doesn't speak to someone about someone else without having spoken to that person first. And God certainly doesn't speak to individuals and say, you need to go and tell that person something if that person doesn't know them. That's not from God. That's from the person. Okay, so it's always in the context 
of relationship. But I wonder, are we willing to do that? To do that when it's needed, to do it gently, to do it tenderly, to do it clearly. And we can do this because of Jesus, because of his spirit in us and amongst us. And that can lead to comfort and great joy as individuals and as a church. Let us pray. Now, Father, we thank you that at the cross we see one another exactly the same as we see ourselves. We are all equals, all levelled, as we stand before your incredible expression of love and forgiveness. Father, we thank you that you have called all of us to come follow you, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, just like Jesus, to follow him, the one who was perfect in every way but who chose to lay down his life uh, for the forgiveness and freedom and relationship to restore a relationship with others, even his enemies. Father, help us uh, at the foot of the cross to be reminded and to be humbled again each and every time and help us to love one another deeply enough to be able to say the things that perhaps need to be said. Not because we're better than anyone, not because uh, we want to hurt anyone, but because uh, we love someone so dearly, we want to see change and transformation in their lives and we're, out of, and we're concerned for them. I want to thank you for this church that you've called uh, us to in this place together. I thank you for the many years of relationships. I thank you for the connections. And, and Father, there are no doubt things that have happened in the past and things that um, people have asked for forgiveness and you have, you have given that forgiveness. This isn't an opportunity to, to think about and dig things up from the past because you have forgiven and you have forgotten. But help us, Father, to continue to relate to each other in a way that produces godly sorrow, in a way that leads to life. We thank you that um, by your spirit you are all about restoration. You're about healing and you bring great comfort and joy, even in the midst of this robust kind of community that you've called us to. And I thank you for the privilege of being able to do that together and thank you for the way you've been at work over many, many decades in this church and for the great trust and faith we declare that you will continue to do in the life of this church in the years and decades and however long to come. So we bring these things to you. We thank you that you're a God who hears us when we pray because you care deeply for us. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.